I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Derivatives, those weapons of mass destruction blamed for causing the financial crisis, are tricky. And crypto, for many people, is even trickier. So what happens when you get crypto derivatives and mix fancy financial products with cutting-edge emerging technologies? The answer? Lots of questions. You see, the everyday collection of markets where cryptocurrencies change hands, called the spot market since trades are made on the spot, has long been subject to claims of manipulation and illiquidity. So when people aspire to create derivatives contracts that obligate individuals to deliver cryptocurrencies at some future date, and then people trade those contracts, called futures or forwards, they unwittingly risk the ire of not only the Securities and Exchange Commission, but also the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or the derivatives regulator, especially where they want to trade those contracts in an unregulated fashion. And the consequences of such regulatory attention can be enormous and upend token projects and entrepreneurial fundraises in ways few would predict. To walk us through this tangled and technical web of issues, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Yvette Valdez, one of the nation's top derivatives and fintech lawyers. Stick with the flow and the goal is to rock the whole globe. I'm going to be the future. I'm going to be the whole reason why you even want to... Yvette, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start with first things first. What are derivatives? Good question. I think the easiest way to define it is um, a derivative is a financial instrument with a value that is reliant upon or derived from an underlying asset or group of assets. So what then would be a crypto derivative? So logically, a crypto derivative is effectively an instrument which derives its value from one or more crypto assets. I see. So if you have some kind of derivative instrument, like a, like a futures instrument or a swap instrument, and if it's referencing Bitcoin or Ether or Monero or whatever it is, some kind of crypto asset, then that would be a, a, a crypto derivative. Correct. But first, you have to make sure you have a derivative. Some people argue that every cryptocurrency is a derivative because of the very nature of distributed ledgers, of, of, of blockchains. Um, and the idea is... You know, whenever you have the memorialization of a transaction on a blockchain, uh, there is some kind of delayed delivery of a coin. And, and as a result, um, most blockchain transactions are memorialized in, in bunches. And as a result, a cryptocurrency, a, a coin even, isn't just a, a basic commodity – Right, like like silver or gold, but it's actually in and of itself um, part and parcel of a derivative contract. Um, what would what's your response to that kind of theory? Because it is one that's that's circulated um, around different kinds of regulatory agencies and obviously academic ivory towers. My personal view is I think it's a bit of a stretch. So uh, traditionally, spot markets and what a spot market is is really built around the industry itself. So effects trading effectively has T plus two. So you settle in about two days. But other contracts could certainly have much longer settlements. And historically, the way that the CFTC has looked at 
the difference between were you a spot contract or were you effectively a forward contract has a lot to do with what the market has established as your settlement period. And it's, it's very unique. There is, there is no cookie cutter time period. And so I think my personal view is it doesn't behoove the regulators to regulate an instrument as a derivative just because the settlement is a little bit longer. And in these markets, that settlement period is a lot shorter than most of the commodities markets. It could take a month to transport oil or crude. And yet we're not going to convert every single oil contract into a derivative contract. Exactly. So, I, you know, I think it's, it's a bit of a stretch. And if you really start looking at the precedent that's out there through court cases that have, have been tried on actual commodities, the regulators really look to what the market has established as your settlement period. How hard is it to actually label any particular cryptocurrency a derivative? It's a, it's a fairly complicated question, and I don't think that the market itself or even the regulators itself have, have figured it all out. And I think it's important to start with a really basic principle, which is that the definition of derivative encompasses uh, really broad principles, right? It's not an express list. While it does include a list in the definition, it also casts a really wide net in capturing a lot of different types of instruments. A really good example, I think, of this question is is whether or not stable coins could potentially be derivatives. And the reason being is that a stable coin, while it seeks to, in its various forms, to stabilize, to, to have a stable value against whatever the benchmark is, a stable coin to USD would always effectively mimic the dollar one-to-one, you're potentially deriving the value of the stable coin with the underlying asset currency or, or what have you. And so there is still a question in the market that potentially some stable coins could really potentially be viewed as derivatives. And, you know, there's it's really a fact-based approach. And I think it's also a risk-based approach, right? Even though folks are trying to disseminate stable coins for good purposes and reasons, you know, to give access to the underbanked, et cetera, there's also the potential for arbitrage as these stable coins don't necessarily always follow the value of, say, the dollar or the euro one-to-one. Why is it important then if uh, if any kind of instrument is designated or deemed to be a derivative? I mean, from a regulatory standpoint, what happens once any particular financial instrument, whether or not it be a, a, a cryptocurrency or a contract that references the, the cryptocurrency for future delivery, why do we care? Like, what, what are the consequences of falling into this basket of being called a derivative? The consequence of being a derivative subject to CFTC regulation on a transactional level is effectively that a derivative cannot be bought and sold by retail participants. You must over the counter. You must be an eligible contract participant, which effectively means you need to have about 10 million assets growth to your name. So this is kind of the sophistication test, if you will, in the derivatives market. So if a stable coin were to be a derivative, it could not be widely bought and sold by mom and pop down the street. It would be 
limited to eligible contract participants over the counter, and otherwise it would need to be bought and sold on a regulated designated contract market. So if mom and pop wanted to buy that stable coin, they would need to go through a futures commission merchant, which is the fancy word for a broker, through the exchange and buy it that way. And that can be really detrimental to a lot of token projects when you're thinking about the the underlying value and the fundamental value of, of what folks in token projects, crypto projects are trying to achieve. Many times it's actually to give access to the retail uh, of varying products, right? To make investments easier, to provide tokens that that are more easily accessible. So let's bear down on what's currently out there. Um, I know that we talked about, you know, the spot market, but there are actually products that are very explicitly intended to be derivatives, like Bitcoin futures, um, which I know were a little bit controversial uh, a couple of years ago, or at least um, when they were first being uh, thought of and and devised. Do you know what what was their origin? Why are they there? And have the fears born out as to their potential uh, risks, or have they been seen to be rather stabilizing uh, products in the market? It's important to note that in the crypto world, it's a little different because most of the futures trading actually occurs outside of the U.S. So yes, um, our exchanges are, are trading various futures and options at this point on Bitcoin. One particular exchange has also recently launched a physically settled contract One of the reasons why it was incredibly controversial is because in order to determine where the risks are, what are the collateral requirements when you're trading in this market, right? Because the product itself has inherent risk and the volatility of the pricing of that product is certainly going to be correlated with um, and reflective of the underlying cash markets. And because the underlying crypto markets were so volatile, there was a lot of concern that trading futures on crypto, Bitcoin, et cetera, could be really dangerous for the futures markets, that the futures commission merchants weren't going to be uh, calling enough collateral and, and, and that you could potentially have default, right, from your customers, then the knock-on consequence from, from your futures commission merchants, et cetera. And so there needed to be a different sort of framework developed to really trade crypto futures. And Giancarlo, you know, effectively did that. He published a backgrounder and, and additional information as to what the exchanges were going to do and what the heightened scrutiny was going to be. So really, I guess the, the, the big idea was, hey, look, you know, if you have a contract for the future delivery of gold or corn or wheat or sheep or whatever, you know, that, that the risk involved with those kinds of products are less than, say, contracting for the future delivery of some sort of cryptocurrency because of the inherent volatility of that particular asset, I mean, because it can spike from day to day. I think the addition of crypto futures is certainly... Um a valuable addition to the market. And as we continue to increase volumes on regulated exchanges, it, it should, at least in theory, help to stabilize some of that volatility. Uh, I think we avoided, in some sense, or I, I would think that the regulators think that they did, avoided disaster um, or, or some sort of inherent risk by having heightened security by really being thoughtful about the framework that 
needed to be slightly different from, from your regular commodities and cash markets. But I still think that there is the issue that your underlying spot market um, is, is quite different. There's a lot of speculation. It's, it's on unregulated exchanges where there's a lot of concern of fraud and manipulation. And so it's, it's certainly something that the regulators here and, and certainly abroad are, are looking at closely and trying to develop strategies whether it be self-regulatory or, or frankly, mandated um, by legislation and regulation to to combat, you know, fraud and manipulation and to have robust uh, underlying spot markets. One of the things you just mentioned is this term manipulation, which is really an interesting one since in some regards the SEC and CFTC have come to at least ostensibly different conclusions. On the one hand, the SEC has not permitted Bitcoin ETFs or mutual fund-like instruments that uh, invest in Bitcoin, uh, in part on the basis that the underlying market for Bitcoin may be subject to manipulation. Uh, But on the other hand, the CFTC has permitted exchanges Uh, to go about listing Bitcoin futures and by doing so has at least implicitly suggested that any uh, manipulation is is minimal. Uh, Is there a conflict here or is something else going on? I think both regulators are very concerned with the underlying market. The SEC has the additional challenge to think through whether or not um, the contract itself is an investment contract that could potentially be a security. which, which is a different question, but I, I think the regulators, and they've stated as much um, the, through, you know, commissioner statements, are concerned with the underlying spot markets. Um, the history of the futures exchanges is, is, is quite different from the ETF. Futures exchanges have this concept of self-certification, which is one of the reasons why the U.S. has the largest volumes of, of futures uh, compared to the rest of the world because it's so easy to launch a product on the exchanges. And so I think the role and just the regulatory framework is slightly different where the CFTC really looked at the product and understood that they could put a framework in place to, to heighten review to ensure that they could have these robust futures markets, notwithstanding the concerns of the underlying markets, but also understood the value that the futures markets could potentially bring to the underlying spot markets. So some of the incentives were slightly different. I don't think the the statement potentially that, um, or the view that the SEC has denied Bitcoin ETFs from launching, whereas the CFTC has allowed futures on Bitcoin to trade means that the SEC and the CFTC aren't aligned in the underlying markets. I think they serve two really different purposes. And, and ultimately, the, the essential question of the concerns of the underlying spot markets continue to remain. Thus far, we've talked about derivatives for crypto. Um, to your knowledge, are there any folks thinking about tokenizing derivatives? So I think there's a couple of things in that answer. One is... Um, what does it mean to, to tokenize a derivative? It could be, you know, in the smart contract context. Um, but also, I think, you know, potentially what you're getting at is this idea that entrepreneurs want to be able to deliver tokens in the future, potentially, and, and investors want to be able to have a stake in, in the token project that, that they're investing in. And so a while ago, and this has been around for several years, um, there were various market instruments that were developed where 
investors could buy into a project um, or provide capital and invest in a token project with the ability to receive tokens in the future, potentially some combination of additional stock, but, but also to have the ability to receive tokens from the token project in the future. And, and one of the, the contracts that, um, that was widely used in the market was this um, instrument called the SAFT. The simple agreement for future tokens, which is extremely big. It was a very big, uh, sort of high-profile instrument. It was, and and there were various versions of it, and there are many different versions of it now. But to put it simply, one of the concerns that we were looking at, and, and one of the things that I was concerned with early on, was that this is effectively an agreement to deliver a commodity, because we know that these tokens in their very form, if they're effectively not a security, they would be a commodity, to deliver this commodity in the future. And I've paid up front, so I've fixed my price. And the issue is that the CFTC excludes non-financial forward contracts, provided that there's delivery of the instrument, but it also requires that that forward contract must be part of commercial merchandising transactions. So the question was, if the delivery of the token under the SAF or another investment contract is a commodity, it's effectively a forward contract, but is it actually excluded from CFTC regulation? And my concern was that it wasn't because it didn't meet the second prong of the non-financial forward contract exclusion. I, I just want to make sure that, that, I'm, that I'm following this. Okay, so basically, uh, when you think about crypto, right, and a crypto derivative, there, there are two different kinds of definitions. One is, okay, do you have a crypto derivative that's literally a derivative referencing cryptocurrency like a, like a Bitcoin futures contract? Then there's a question as to whether or not you can have a crypto derivative that in and of itself is is a, a a kind of a contract for for future delivery that really makes something that looks like a commodity and kind of for lack of a better word transforms it into a derivative right and so there's the saft agreement and everyone's really thought about the saft because it's a very high profile way and people want to raise money via the saft and people have, a lot of times they've spent their time thinking about well does this make it into a security into investment uh, contract land uh, under the Howey test when we've talked about that on, on, on this podcast before. But you're saying, you know, this agreement and the way that's being structured actually has implications for kind of making it into a derivative and at least some inter- iterations of that contract. As well, because I think, you know, as a as a firm, we also agreed that there were securities law issues with, with the staff, to be clear. But if you surmounted that issue, then you were left with a token that was a commodity that you paid for upfront with a fixed price for delivery at some point in the future. And the question was, it looks like a forward contract, feels like a forward contract because the investor effectively fixed the price of the token upfront for delivery of the token in the future. And the underlying reason and the underlying concern we had that the reason why they were doing that was in order to be able to sell that token in the future, because a lot of the early projects that we saw was effectively an influx of tokens for early investors that would then sell for a profit afterwards. And obviously, if that happened, if it was like a derivative, then we get into this original question of liquidity and the people who would have, uh, you know, how that 
contract would be traded. It'd have to be traded on a kind of regulated uh, platform or, 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 or exchange. So, you know, if you fall into this box uh, via the SAFT, the argument goes it, there's a whole box of issues that would have to be sorted through even if you didn't have a security. And the biggest issue is, is that the CFTC makes very clear in its adopting release in 2012 when it defines the forward contract exclusion that you not only have to have delivery, but it has to be a commercial merchandising transaction. And it goes on to say, oh, and by the way, if you're a hedge fund trying to buy gold in the future, that's not a commercial merchandising transaction unless you're buying it for the jewelry store that you're running. It cannot be for investment purposes. So the question was, are these structures where investors are agreeing to delivery of the token in the future, assuming you um, surmount the securities issue, you have fully decentralized network, and you're receiving a token for a price that you fixed earlier on, much earlier on in the beginning of, of the relationship in the contract, you now are sitting with a derivative. You might not be sitting with a security, but you're sitting with a derivative that does not clearly fit within the exclusion, and you need to deal with that issue. Okay, so you've now explained to this really horrible, I guess, scenario, I guess, for some of the, the folks who are, uh, you know, working through a SAFT agreement, perhaps, and they've they've ended up with this financial product, and let's say they've been able to work through all the securities law issues, and, 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 and they're still running into the uh, this world of derivatives regulation. So what could an actor do then under those circumstances? Or is this really just going to stymie the market? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, so there's, there's one thing is one, that you can't necessarily get away from this regulation. Part of what we did was develop a tool that really disclosed and teased out this information so that investors could properly identify whether or not they fell into the bucket uh, of sitting with a derivative and the projects could properly structure around it and ensure that they were abiding by regulations. But also, there's the potential that you might be able to structure the token sale as a, a trade option or as a commodity option, which has less scrutiny than just uh, a derivative. And, and I won't get into the details of that, but there's the ability to potentially have different structures that could be applied that wouldn't have the end result of you sitting with a derivative that you effectively weren't able to transact. How much more cost does that introduce into the system? I mean, you know, if you're talking about structuring a, a transaction now, not just because you have to figure out how to um, sort of shield yourself from falling into securities law uh, land, but but to legitimately construct a, a, a transaction that even when you're in derivatives law land, you want to be able to navigate efficiently. Uh, that sounds like uh, a lot of lawyers, uh, a lot of my future students out there will, will, will have uh, jobs. I mean, but but what does this mean for the project itself and, and how can they, uh, you know, the, the entrepreneurs, for those who are engaged in um, useful, socially beneficial projects, I mean, how can they respond to those compliance costs? I mean, we were thinking through this issue um, with consensus and uh, really looking to modify these structures or these contracts in a way that could be compliant with um, derivatives and commodities laws. And so we actually developed a tool that we think really addressed a lot of the issues um, that are inherent 
from the commodities law perspective and the securities law perspective and in, in the different types of staff contracts that were out there. And we made it freely available to everybody on open law. And it's called the automated convertible note tool. So you actually made your own fintech or uh, I guess regtech sort of compliance tool um, uh, for, 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 for structuring the, the, the transactions. Do you get a, a sense that many entrepreneurs even know that this is a, a risk, or do, or do you get the sense that they're really focused on securities law? Our experience has been that folks don't really understand the derivatives regulation and just haphazardly dismiss it because they don't think that the regulation is clear. But I think the regulation is incredibly clear as to where the CFTC expects to, to regulate um derivatives instruments, and you need to be very aware that if you're fixing a price today for delivery of a token in the future and it's purely an investment play, you've just entered into a forward contract over the counter. And if you're not an eligible contract participant and if you haven't otherwise reported that swap and, and satisfied your requirements under Dodd-Frank, um, you could have an issue. And so we developed a tool that really teased out the, the varying uh, applications of derivatives regulation and commodities law to these investment structures so that investors were aware of what their obligations would be and what potential different options could potentially be available to them. If, for instance, they're the type of investor that is an investor but could also be participating in the network, that's an important fact pattern for potentially being able to rely upon certain exemptions under the CFTC regulations if they are actually buying these tokens in the future. So we really tease those out on open law on this automated convertible note tool. And um, if you're listening, go check it out. Yvette, thanks so much for making it on to the show. Thanks so much. So often when one thinks about crypto regulation, we do so through the lens of securities law. But there's a misplaced perception that if a financial product is not a security, entrepreneurs and others are home free and liberated to structure their transactions and relationships in whatever way they wish. But when you kick the tires, you find out that, like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, law finds a way. And other sources of regulation, sometimes even more arcane, lurk in the digital jungle, ready to devour the unprepared. But the law isn't always a mystery, and just as threats and opportunities evolve, so are regulatory responses to them, and only time will tell what new species of compliance evolves as the industry matures. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.